My name is Keith Christensen. I'm a pastor in the Fort Worth area, and I've been helping to train counselors for the last seven years with CBCD. And my lecture is on exam questions 14 and 15 about justification and trusting Christ alone for salvation. So I assume all of you are in here because you do intend to actually take the exams and pursue ACBC certification. Is that right? Okay. All right. Well, if when we get to the end of each one of these questions, if you don't feel like you can answer the question, then please feel free to ask me a question about that that might help you to do that. But let's open with prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to talk about the heart of the gospel, uh, justification, how you declare us righteous because of the work of Christ. I pray that you would help all of these saints in this room to think in a more precise and biblical way about this doctrine. And I pray that you would not just increase their understanding, but that you would increase their love for you, their joy in you, their assurance as as they grow in this uh, doctrinal depth related to justification. God, I pray you'd help me to speak clearly and um, and truthfully. I pray you would be honored by the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. We pray they would be acceptable to you. We offer them to you in Jesus, and so we trust that they will be. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Number 15, provide an explanation and biblical defense of justification. So I'm going to do it in that order. First, the explanation. Uh, Justification means to declare righteous. And declare is an important word. That's one of the big dividing lines between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Is justification to declare righteous? Or does it mean to make righteous? In the Roman Catholic system, they would say justification is the means by which God makes us righteous, transforms us morally, so that we, cooperating with God's grace, can do good works, and then on the basis of those good works that we do, because of his justifying grace infused into us, then we can be declared righteous. But actually, the Reformers saw what the Bible really teaches was that justification is the good news, not just of God transforming us and making us righteous, but declaring us righteous before we've done anything good by his spirit. So justification is to declare righteous. All right, in general, how we, I think, use this word, even in English, to refer to a moral judgment that one is not in the wrong, but rather in the right, or pronouncement that one has not done any injustice, but rather has done what is just, justification. Uh, The word, the Greek word in the New Testament, justification, is the noun form of the word righteous. So you you could also think of rightification or righteousification. But it's a declarative thing. So uh, think about just how you might use this word, or I might, in common everyday English, not theologically. If, If this session went long... And I try to justify it. What am I doing? I'm trying to get you to declare that I'm in the right. Even even in the face of apparent wrongdoing. Okay. Justification is a declarative thing. It, it's a, a moral judgment. You think of the gavel coming down. Okay. So in salvation, 
This is God's declaration or verdict as judge that sinners who trust in Christ from the very moment they trust in Christ are 100% righteous before him as if they had kept his whole law perfectly. God gives us a legal status or standing of perfect righteousness before him. So note, this is a verdict. This is a judicial declaration that is better than the declaration not guilty. Uh, God God is not declaring sinners in Christ to be just innocent as if they had done no wrong, but to be righteous as if they had kept the whole law perfectly. Justification is God not moving you from negative 100 to zero in your right standing before God, but from negative 100 to positive 100% your relation to his law in the status or standing you have before him. Okay, in addition uh, to like this legal and judicial language, justification can also be described in the Bible through like accounting language. To account, to charge, to charge to or against one's account, to credit. So, for example, in Romans 4, in justification, it says God does not count our sin against us, and God counts righteousness to us. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So, So, generally, we think of justification using legal, judicial, forensic categories, but the Bible also uses some accounting language to talk about this crediting of a status. All right, well, what is the biblical defense of that? Uh, I'm going to use especially Romans to establish this, but we'll add in some other texts along the way. So first, the message of justification, which is, which is the gospel, the message of righteousness, efficacy. And I say that because Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, I say Martin Luther's gospel breakthrough. He he has this great little uh, passage where he's reflecting on, on his own life, on his own uh, testimony, and he says he, he used to hate this verse. When he would read Romans one seventeen, and says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he said, I understood that to mean the righteousness by which God is righteous, and he judges sinners for being unrighteous. He said, I hated this phrase, the righteousness of God. And, and he even said, he said, I was angry with God, as if it was not enough for him to pronounce his judgment against me by the Ten Commandments, but to add to that pain also that he would condemn me in what he calls the gospel that declared the righteousness of God that I fall short of. And, and so he talks about how he, he, he prayed and then came to realize upon meditating on this verse that this was, this was called good news because it was the message that God gives to us a righteous standing that he requires of us. And, and he said when he understood that, he felt that he was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself. And then I extolled that sweetest word, the righteousness of God, with a, a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated it. 
So the, the, the gospel is the message of justification, how God can declare sinners righteous. Galatians 1, this just points out how important getting this right is. If you read the whole book of Galatians, the issue is, well, they were messing up the doctrine of sanctification, uh, excuse me, of justification. And Paul says in the intro that uh, by doing that, they were deserting God who called them in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So if if you pervert justification as a free gift of God's righteousness, then you have turned from the true gospel. Okay, so here the meaning of justification. So let let's it's one thing just to say, well, you know, the reformers were right and and the Roman Catholics weren't, but but can we establish this in Scripture that justification means not moral transformation, making you righteous, infusing righteous into you, but, but it's a judicial thing, declaring you righteous. And we can establish that. Uh, for example, in Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, in Romans 2... He, he's, I mean, don't don't be afraid by that verse. We're, we're about to read a verse that says no one will be justified by works of the law, okay? But here in chapter two, what he's doing, he's establishing that Jews, even though they have the scriptures and they have the law, they're guilty before God just as much as Gentiles are. So, so he's saying, don't think you're righteous before God just because you have the Bible and listen to it in the synagogue. Because it's not those who just hear the law who will be declared righteous, the doers of the law will be justified. Well, clearly justified there means declared righteous. He's not meaning the doers of the law will be made righteous. If they're doing the law, they already are righteous, right? Okay, so here justification has a clear declarative sense, judicial sense. Also, here's another good verse to establish this meaning of justification. Luke 9, seven nineteen. when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. But, but literally, what the Greek says is they justified God. Well, in what sense? Did, did they make God more righteous in his character? No way. They declared God to be just. Justification is, is declarative. It's making a judgment. Okay. All right. So next, the need for justification, man's depravity means we can never be justified by our own works. Romans 3, 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So by the works that you do, by your efforts to keep God's law, you will never be declared righteous before God on that basis. No, no one will. Why? Romans three twenty three. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, this, is, this is not why God gave the law. Romans, Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God never gave his law to us so that we would try to keep it to establish our own right standing before him. In fact, God gave us the law in some ways to accomplish the opposite, in, in part to show us that we can't establish our own righteousness before him. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 2.16, we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in 
Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's a summary of points one through three. The gospel is the good news of how unrighteous sinners can be declared righteous, justified by God. Okay, well, if no one can be justified by his own law keeping, then that means if anyone will be declared righteous, it must be by a gift of God, not something they've worked to attain. And so it is. This is the gift of justification. We're justified by grace alone, apart from our works. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We don't usually think about a, a, a legal declaration, a judicial verdict being a gift. But this one is. The gavel's coming down from the judgment seat of God in a way that's a gift. We hold that no one is justified by faith. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, if you were declared righteous by God in accordance with your works, you know what that would be? It would not be his gift. It would be your due. It would be what you deserved. It would be your rightful wage. And so Romans 4 says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you go to your job and you bust it, you work hard and your boss gives you a paycheck, you write him a thank you letter? Like, thank you so much for the kind and generous gift you gave me. No, this, this is your due. It's your wage. It's not a gift. To the one who does not work, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, those who don't deserve it, well, his faith is counted as righteousness. This legal status is, is a gift of God. Romans 5 15 through 18, it, it's just full of this language. It, describing this gift of righteousness as the free gift. The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God. This free gift brings justification. Galatians 2.21, after Paul says we're justified not by our works but through faith in Christ, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. To say that your right standing before God is based, even in part, on your own works, is to nullify the grace of God. And to turn salvation from something that's not gift into something that is due. Okay, we could add more scriptures. These are glorious, but I won't, won't read all of them. Next, the reception of justification. How do we receive this gift? We're justified through faith alone, again, apart from our works. So it must be this way. If, you're, if, if justification is the gift of God, it has to be received by faith for it to, to truly still be a gift. If we offered God something to pay for it, that would, that would mess up the gift nature. It wouldn't be by grace. So faith alone and grace alone fit together perfectly in Romans 4:16 says this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace 
in, in Romans, while it's very clear, we receive justification through faith. The uh, 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, all who have faith. 3.25, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 3.26, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 3.30, God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Romans 4.3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He had faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. He was, he was justified. Romans 4.5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness i don't know how you can read the book of romans and miss this one and and it's beautiful abraham is the example right do you remember when and how abraham was counted righteous before god abraham was was basically saying god you're you haven't fulfilled your promise um you said i'm i'm going to have a son and it's going to turn into a great nation. And right now, I don't have one. The heir of my house is some guy named Eleazar, you know. And uh, so, I mean, this is encouraging too. The faith through which Abraham received the gift of righteousness was, was not a perfectly strong faith. He was doubting. His faith was mixed with doubt. And, and so God takes Abraham out and says, Abraham, look at the stars. Um. So if you can count the stars, then you'll be able to count your offspring. And it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did Abraham do? Nothing other than believe. He, he was just looking at the stars. And God counted it to him as righteousness because he believed God's promise. Not perfectly, but truly beautiful and that's how abraham was declared righteous by god clearly a gift abraham didn't do anything but just stare up and listen to what god was saying but romans 4 22 says the words it was counted to him as righteousness were not written for abraham's sake alone but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised jesus our lord uh, I love this one, Hebrews eleven seven. Let me point this out. This says, even not even before Abraham, this is always how people gained right standing with God. Even Noah, Hebrews eleven seven says, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. An heir, he inherited. You inherit. Do you inherit your gifts that you, I mean, your, your due that you work for? No, you inherit gifts. He, he, even Noah, received as a gift a right standing before God that came from faith. Amazing. Okay, here's an important qualification to make, an important caveat. Our faith is the instrument or the means through which we receive justification. Our faith is receptive, not contributory. To our righteous standing before God. So this is important. I think, I think some people get confused about this. I was confused about this. In my uh, early Christian life. When, when you read that you're justified through faith. Someone could start to think. Okay that means. Basically the, 
They wouldn't put it this way, but you basically think, okay, well, I can't merit right standing with God by my works, so I'll merit right standing with God by my faith. As if you offer to God, God, here are my works, and he says, no, you're guilty. You're a sinner. You say, oh, okay, God doesn't want my works. Oh, Okay, God, here's my faith. Look at my faith. I trust in you. Will you declare me righteous on the basis of that? And you know what? No, he won't. You will not be declared righteous with God on the basis of your faith. You know why? Your faith is mixed with sin. Do you trust God perfectly? No, you do not. Neither did Abraham. Faith is not the grounds on which we're declared righteous. Faith doesn't contribute to your righteousness before God. Faith is just what receives the gift. Here's another way to think about it. Faith does not present itself to God. That would be, you don't put your faith in your faith. God, I'm trusting I'm right with you because because I trust you. No, instead, this is how faith works. It says, God, here's my works. Here's my faith. And God says, you're not guilty. And so faith in Christ says, okay, God, well, here's the work of Christ. Here, I come to you depending on this, on what he did. And, and you're declared righteous on that basis. Saving faith looks away from itself. I know even my kids have, have struggled with this. Uh, one of my sons said, you know, how can I be a Christian if, if what I need to do is to trust in Jesus, but I still have doubts. Well, what's he thinking there? He's thinking that faith is the basis of right standing before God, not the means by which you receive. And, and he knows my faith's not perfect. I won't be declared righteous on the basis of my faith. Okay, so faith is just, is, is receptive. When you, when you trust in Christ, your faith doesn't get added to the work of Christ as, as part of what declares you righteous on the basis of. Is this making sense? It's really, it's really important. It's not your faith. It's the grounds of justification. It's not the strength of your faith. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And you may need to counsel people. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Jesus. Uh, I heard a great illustration about this. I heard this from uh, D.A. Carson. He talked about in the, if you imagine the Passover in Egypt, and um, he, he made up this conversation between two Jewish men, one strong in faith, one weak, and the man who's strong in faith, like this is great god's going to save us today and and the man who's weak in faith says i don't know i just i'm afraid i don't i don't know if we are really going to be saved and and the man strong in faith said well i mean did you do what god said did you put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and the man weak in faith says well of course i did i'm not crazy you know and 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 he says but i'm just i'm just not sure i have these doubts i don't know if this is really going to work and this man strong in faith said, God's going to prove himself. I have no doubt. And the question is, which, which of those Jewish men were actually saved that night? The answer is both. Both. Why? Because it's not, it's not the, the quality of your faith or the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. 
the promise of God. Okay, and that leads us to the grounds of our justification is, is the work of Christ, what we put our faith in. The grounds of justification. We're justified in Christ alone on the basis of his work. So the faith that justifies is faith in Jesus. It's, it's important to specify, right? A lot of people, we, we hear the phrase, uh, these are people of faith. Well, all right, this, it's not just some abstract faith related to God or God that is, is the means by which we receive the gift of justification. It is a specific faith, faith in Christ and what he has done. And the faith that justifies is faith in Jesus. And so we're justified on account of Jesus' death, on account of his resurrection, on account of his righteousness. So I, I think you, you understand this, that it's the death of Jesus that you trust in that's part of the basis by which God declares you righteous. So, so let me, I guess, just explore these other ones too. Also, his resurrection is necessary for God to declare us righteous. Romans 4 25 425 says Jesus was delivered up. I mean, like he was betrayed to, to be killed on a cross. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. God can declare you righteous, not just on the basis of Jesus dying for your sins, but on the basis of Jesus rising from the dead. He was raised for our justification. Think about how this works. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, then there's no assurance that your sins are fully paid for. Um, and in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You're not justified. 1 Timothy 3, 16, this is interesting. 1 Timothy 3, 16 talks about the resurrection of Jesus as the justification of Jesus. Now, again, that will make you squeamish if you're thinking of the word justification as moral transformation, which it's not. If you're thinking about it as judicial declaration, okay, I'm comfortable with that. The resurrection was, was the public vindication. Your Bible probably says he was vindicated. It's the Greek word is justification. Is when Jesus rose from the dead, that was the great public declaration that Jesus is righteous. This man who died didn't die because he was a sinner who deserved to die. He had no sin. And so he rose from the dead and that declared that he was righteous. And, and so this is another way to think about it. That when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, if, if his resurrection counts for you, then, then, then the vindication that he was righteous is part of the basis on which you are declared righteous before God. So it, you're, we can be declared righteous because of his death, because of his resurrection, also on account of his righteousness or obedience. Um, Romans 5, I'm, I'm going to read uh, just 18 and 19. Romans 5, 18 and 19. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. What trespass was that? Adam's. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Condemnation is the opposite of declaration. Declared, not righteous, condemnation. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
So, so we're declared righteous, not just because Jesus rose from the dead, not just because Jesus died for our sins, but because Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. And that's related to this next point, the great exchange of justification. The great exchange of justification is because of union with Christ. In these verses here, uh, just talk about union with Christ. I'm going to go to the next point here. Imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Circle that one on your notes or underline it. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see it after imputed righteousness. This, this is a beautiful verse to illustrate this great exchange. It says, God made him who knew no sin. And what's his name? Jesus. Thank you. Right answer. Always a safe answer. Yep, yep. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Oh, in what sense did Jesus become sin for us? Our sins were counted against him. Our sins, the record of our unrighteousness was imputed to him. It was charged against his account. Our sins were not infused into him that morally corrupted him, but our sins were imputed to him, counted against him. That's how he bore our sins. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How? In the same sense in which he became sin. Our sins were counted against Christ so that God could count his righteousness to us. God on the cross treated Christ as if he had lived our wicked, unrighteous lives so that he could treat us as if we had lived Jesus's perfectly obedient life. The record of our sins were counted against him on the cross if we trust in him, the record of Jesus' perfect obedience that he lived as a man is counted toward us. It's the great exchange. All of our sin in exchange for all of the righteousness and law-keeping of Jesus were justified not just on the basis of his death or his resurrection, but on the basis of his obedience. Sometimes theologians talk about this, the active obedience of Christ, how he fulfilled the law as a man, and what's called the passive obedience of Christ, how he gave up his, his life. Uh, whether or not that terminology is the best way to describe those things, it, it illustrates how part of the grounds of our justification includes the righteous life of Jesus. It's why, it's why God didn't send his son from heaven an hour before he went to the cross to save us from our sin. He didn't come to earth as a 33-year-old man headed to the cross. He came as a baby so he could live and keep the law perfectly in our shoes, in our place. He obeyed in our place, and then he died in our place, and then he rose in our place. And I say in our place, all of it counts for us because of our union with him. Um, Ephesians 5.31. Ephesians 5.31 and 32. It's talking about marriage. Um, this, is a, this, this is an illustration of, of union. That when a husband and wife marry, the two become one flesh. And, and Paul says, this is profound. 
and I'm saying this mystery refers to Christ and the church, two becoming one flesh. Okay, how is it the case that man and woman, the two become one flesh? Well, there's a physical representation of that in, in physical intimacy, but it means more than that. Uh, because when people commit fornication, two don't become one, one flesh in the, in the sense of God's plan for marriage. Two becoming one flesh means there's one mortal life fully shared where all that one has and is and does belongs to the other. I am yours. All that I have is yours. And all that the other has and is and does belongs to the other. One mortal life fully shares. And that includes, for example, um, if, if two people get married and one of them is in a lot of debt, has a lot of student loans, you know what? That debt becomes the legal responsibility of the other because, because the two become one. And you know what? If, if this other person that they get married is like filthy, dirty, off-the-charts rich, this other person is now filthy, dirty, off-the-chart rich. Why? Because what belongs to one rightfully belongs to the other. They're united. And so also, if you're united to Christ, all of your sin debt can rightfully be counted against him in the court of God's justice. And all of, all of the credit of righteousness that he accrued perfectly obeying and pleasing God as a man can rightly be credited to your account. If you're united to him, then he obeyed for you in your, in your place in a way that counts for you. He died for you, for your sins, in a way that really can count for you. And, and the scripture uses lots of beautiful language about union with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I, die, I have died with him. I was raised with him so so this is that's the basis of this great exchange is union with christ imputed righteousness okay not infused righteousness now another way to to think about the great exchange of justification sometimes theologians talk about this the justification with which you are declared righteous is in the righteousness by which you are declared righteous in justification. It's an alien justification. Now, people don't use this terminology typically anymore today for good reason, right? Because what you're thinking right now about alien righteousness is not what this means, the word alien, okay? The word alien doesn't, doesn't mean here little green men from Mars or, you know, the, the, uh, the mummified remains and presented to the Congress in Mexico this last week. Did you see that? It doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> alien can also mean not native, right? Um, think about illegal aliens. It's not talking about Martians. It's talking about foreigners, for people who live outside of a certain country, native, okay? So an alien righteous, this means an, an, a righteousness that is foreign to you. It is outside of you. It is not native to you. It is not inherent to you. We are declared righteous on the basis of a righteousness that is not our own. You could write this under the word alien, not my own. Uh, imparted? Uh, imputed? I don't... Okay. Yeah, so I've been using the language of imputed versus infused. But yeah, infused or imparted would be kind of the same thing. Yes, and, and that's not the, the means by which we're declared righteous is not because God transforms our characters and makes us inherently righteous and declares us righteous on the basis of that. 
Rather, he imputes to us or counts to us an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's outside of us, that that is not a righteousness that's worked in us. When God declares us righteous, it's on the basis of a righteousness that's not our own. It's credited to us. So in their beautiful scriptures here, um, Paul in Philippians 3, 9 says, uh, I count everything as lost to gain Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. So some of the great articulations of justification say we're not justified on the basis of anything done by us or wrought in us, wrought, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. It, not by an infused imparted. It's not, not even by God, how God makes us righteous. It, it's, it's this righteousness. It's not my own outside of me. It's alien. It's what Jesus did. Okay, that's important. Because that's a stable righteousness. Yes. 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 Yes, and they and they would they would say that is justifying grace. They would that's their conception of justification. When you participate in the sacraments, you receive justifying grace, which in their conception is an infusion of righteousness. It's like it's like a spiritual red bull that gives you power from God to actually keep the law in a way you couldn't just on your own apart from his justifying grace. And then if you sin mortally, then you lose that justifying grace. And you and and uh, you know, anyway, and then also justificate your justification can increase in that system. You can get more infusions of righteousness, but yeah, or, or, uh, yeah, there's more than one, but yes. Yes. If, if, yeah, that's true, which is, which, which is a, a kind of conception of an, an outside righteousness, an alien righteousness. But we don't need good works from anyone else because the obedience of Jesus is plenty good works for us to be declared righteous on the basis of. Next, the great end of justification, the glory of God alone. The glory of God alone. If we are saved by God's gift not our work, received through faith, not our work, completely because of the work of Christ, then all the glory goes to God. And these, that's not just good logic, that's Bible. Okay, these verses make that point. So here's a summary of these points. We are justified by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of his death, resurrection, and righteousness alone, that results in the glory of God alone. Okay, next, the justice of justification. There's a question, if God justifies the ungodly, but actually, if you think about that, isn't declaring guilty people righteous an abominable perversion of justice? And I say that because these Old Testament scriptures, God, God tells judges, if you're a judge and a guilty person walks in and you declare them righteous, that's an abomination to me. That's a perversion of justice. Don't pervert justice like that. So, so how, can God, how can God do that in the gospel? How, can, how is it just? How is he a just judge if he's declaring righteous people who clearly are not righteous? 
That's what he said bad judges do in the Old Testament. Well, this is, this is the burden of Romans 3, 25 and 26. It says, Romans 3, 25, God put forward Christ, it's amazing, as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's love. It's not what it says. To show God's righteousness, to show, to show God's justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You see this? It seems if God forgives, if he lets the guilty go free, it's like, is God really just? When he passes over sins instead of punishes them, is he acting like a bad judge? And so it seemed when God was passing over the sins of people in the Old Testament, it's like he was just not doing, not meeting out justice against their sins. But so he put forth Christ and the sacrifice of Christ vindicates God's justice. It shows that God is righteous because it shows that God does pour out his judgment against every sin that's ever committed. Every sin that is ever committed in the history of the world will receive the full weight of God's judgment that it deserves. Either in hell or on the cross of Christ. But never does God just let sin go unpunished. Never. So the cross of Christ vindicates the justice of God. He can declare us righteous in a way that is perfectly just because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's why verse 26 says that the cross was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. If Did Jesus have to die for us to be forgiven? He did, because otherwise for him to just to declare us righteous would be unjust. But because he died for our sins, God can be just, uphold perfect justice and still declare us righteous. The gospel's perfect. Okay, Uh, the joy of justification. Um. Romans 4, you say, wow, you keep talking about Romans 3 and 4 a lot. Yeah, that, that is the heart. That's the heart. Some, some people have called Romans 3, 22 through 26, the most important paragraph in the Bible. Now, you may say, well, I don't know about that. And I don't know about that either. But the fact that someone might even think it's a good idea to claim that should tell you this is a really important passage. Okay. All right, the, the joy of justification. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven? Happy are those. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. This, if, if you're thinking about what I'm saying, this should make you rejoice in your heart. The joy of justification, the benefits of justification, peace with God, the hope of glory, the certainty of God's love, safe from God's wrath, reconciliation to God. All of these things I I just listed from from Romans. Next, the evidence of justification. What's the evidence of justification? Well, the evidence is sanctification, good works, a a changed life in Romans 6 through 8 talk about this 
that in union with Christ, what we receive is not only justification, freedom from the penalty of sin, but also sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. Notice this is the evidence, not part of the grounds of our justification. Just like our faith, the good works that God works in us after we're saved don't come back and join the work of Christ as part of the grounds on which God declares us righteous. It never does. Okay, so in this is on that understanding, this is evidence. That's how we can say, no, James does not disagree with Paul. That might be confusing when you read James 2.24, which says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And, you, and if you just read that one sentence, you think, oh man, Paul and James should have coordinated before they wrote you know, the parts of the Bible that they did. But actually, no. If you read the broader passage and the broader Bible, you see that, that James and Paul agreed on justification and the gospel. Kind of cool, in Galatians 2, Paul said, in Galatians is where Paul is saying justification by faith apart from works over and over. Paul says, I went to Jerusalem and I set before the apostles the gospel I preach, including James. And they said, they shook hands over the gospel. Okay, so, so James put his stamp of approval on Paul's gospel. Also, they, interesting, they both use Abraham as their example. So here's basically what James says in this passage. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. We're justified by faith apart from our works, but works are the necessary evidence that show we have true saving faith, which has united us to Christ. So James 2.18, for example, says, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works, Show me your faith apart from your works. You can't. I will show you my faith by my works. See, the point is the works are the evidence that someone truly has trusted Christ. All right, if, if that's confusing to you, I know that that was really brief, but um, there's a short article you can read that I point you to in your notes. Okay, next, the certainty of justification. Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in Romans, the end of Romans 8, beautiful, the certainty of justification. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If God has declared you righteous, no one, no one is going to come into the courtroom of his justice and say, oh, oh well, well, I have a charge against this person. What about how they spoke angrily uh, the, the morning before the conference, you know, to their family member? What about the sinful thing that they thought while Pastor Keith was teaching? Or the sinful thing that Pastor Keith thought that while he was teaching on justification? God, I have this charge to bring you. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If God has declared you righteous, you're righteous. This, this, this is a legal status you can rest in and be certain about. Because God is God. And, okay. I'll just leave it at that. Here's a summary of these points. God's gift of justification is merciful, but, I think your notes, I think I changed this, is merciful, but still upholds perfect justice. I think is a better way to say it than what I put on your notes, which is different than that, no? Right? A little bit different? Yeah. So I would recommend changing your notes to say God's gift of justification is merciful, but still upholds perfect justice. It's immutable and irreversible. It secures for us all other saving blessings of God, including sanctification in this life and glorification in the next. 
Okay, so here, go to text on justification. I camped out in Romans, but here are more. Here are articulations of justification in church history that I think are good. And you can read those to help you answer this question um, on your own time. And I encourage you to do so. All right, next. And we'll have to go quick, more quickly, obviously, on this one. But I think that's okay. This one is, you know, te- requires less theological pr- precision. Uh, explain what it means to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Well, to trust in Jesus, trust means to put your faith in uh, or believe in or upon him. And, and through history, Christian theologians have talked about faith as having three aspects. Knowledge, Romans 10, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? Or the unbelieving Jews, Paul said, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. So to trust in Jesus, you actually have to hear about him and the true gospel about him. Also, you have to give assent to it. You, you have to say that it's true and truly meets your needs. But even that isn't enough because James 2.19 says, you believe God is one, that's good. But even the demons believe and they shudder. So you can't just have heard the gospel, know about it and give mental assent to it, you, you grant that that is true, that Jesus is the Son of God who died in the place of sinners so they can be saved. The devil believes that. Saving faith is different than the doctrinal affirmations that the devil has. It also includes this third element, personal trust, reliance, dependence, or cut off on this screen but on your notes, entrusting yourself to another. It's a confident, personal appropriation of the promises of the gospel, putting all your hope for being right with God in what he said Christ's work has accomplished for me. Um, Here are three words that that three are words that are come up frequently in the confessions, historic confessions of faith from the Reformation. They talk about faith as receiving, resting in and relying upon Jesus and his saving work. But, but it's upon him. It, that saving faith, there's a very personal nature to it. It's not faith in doctrines. It's faith in a person, in what he has done for us. And the John Murray quote I put on your handout talks about that. I'm, again, going to let you just read that on your own. Um, but 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 in the middle, he says, faith, after all, is not belief of propositions of truth respecting the Savior. Faith is trust in a person, the person of Christ. That's why also the Bible calls people to faith. Jesus called people to faith essentially by saying, follow me, yoke yourself to me. It's, it's a, it, it is entrusting to trust in Christ means to entrust yourself to him personally and follow him and receive all that he is and has done for you. Receive it, rest in it, and rely upon it. Okay, what is true faith? Heidelberg Catechism. This is also great, but we don't have time. Some hymns, beautiful, expressing what it means to trust in Christ alone. Another way you can look at this is to Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, so if, if you can also talk about what it means to trust in Christ using that biblical definition 
of faith. Obviously, I'm going fast, but but you have these notes um, can help you answer this question on your exams. Trusting in Christ alone also means giving up other trusts. If it is trusting in Christ alone, that means there's nothing else. You you have to renounce, repudiate all other hopes for salvation, especially trust in self and your own works and righteousness. These, these scriptures show that that to, to be declared righteous by God, you have to trust only in the work of Christ. And, and it can't even be, this was the problem in Galatians. The church in Galatia, they were not trying to punt the work of Christ and depend on their own works instead of the work of Christ. They were, met, they were going to a false gospel, which was trusting in their own works in addition to the work of Christ. Uh, kind of, yeah, kind of like it, but a, a dual, a dual grounds of justification, Christ's work and your work, because Paul, Paul said to them in Galatians five, he said, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You have to understand the context because in the book of Acts, he actually took a Gentile to go get circumcised. Why, if the Galatians accepted circumcision, would Christ be of no advantage to them? It's because what they were being told they needed to do was to keep that work of the Old Testament law in addition to what Christ did in order to, to be declared righteous for him. So if you depend on your own works in addition to what Christ has done, then what Christ did doesn't, doesn't justify you because your part of justification isn't perfect. So to trust in Christ for justification, you trust in him alone. You don't add your own works. Right. Acts. It was either Timothy or Titus. I don't remember. He had one of them. That was, that, well, that was just for the sake of making him a more acceptable missionary. To the Jews, that's why he did that. Like, hey, you're gonna have a hard, it's gonna, you're gonna have a hard time going into synagogues and preaching the gospel. Yeah. Let's do this. So when I lived in Israel, we didn't put up a Christmas tree because of right right. Yeah, your your motivation, the motivation there was just for the sake of ministry, right. but the, but the motivation that the Galatian Christians were considering circumcision was for the sake of completing their right standing before God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, next, trusting in Christ alone means, for salvation, means repenting from sin. Together with faith, repentance is the biblical response to the gospel. If, if someone is not repenting, from their sin, they are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation. What the Bible says what it means to trust alone in Christ for salvation. Because at times only faith belief is listed as the appropriate response to the gospel. At other times only repentance is listed as the appropriate response to the gospel. At times both repentance and faith are listed as the appropriate response to the gospel. Well, the faith and repentance are like two sides of the same coin. Uh, repentance describes what you turn from when you put your faith in Christ. 
Faith describes what you're turning to when you put your faith in Christ. Okay? So when you, when you reach up to receive the gift of salvation in Christ, it, it's like you, you, you want to drop the sin that you have been clinging to. You want to turn away from it. And here's another way to think about it. What is the salvation that Jesus is offering? It's forgiveness and increasing freedom from sin. And so if you don't want to repent of sin, then you're not putting your faith in Christ wanting his salvation because if you don't want to be free from your sin, you don't want the salvation that Jesus won for you and is trying to give to you that you receive by faith. So... um, this is, I like how John Murray put it. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. It is impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. It's possible to distinguish them, and that's important. Faith and repentance are distinguishable, but they're not separable. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Yes, so, so um, repentance describes the turn to Christ from the perspective of what we're turning from. We're turning from sin in our heart. Faith describes the turn to Christ from the perspective of what we're turning to. But it's the same turn. It's turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Now, here's, let me... This isn't a lecture about repentance. Some people get squeamish about saying this, that repentance is, is repentance, like repentance and faith is the, the way we receive the gift of justification or a repentant faith or a trusting in faith, a, a trusting in Christ kind of repentance. Because if they start to think that repentance means doing good works, but, but, the Bible distinguishes repentance from the fruits of repentance. That's important, okay? Repentance is just this, the inner heart turn, a change of mind, a change of heart. You have a change of heart about your sin. You want to turn from it. So um, as long as, you're caref- as you carefully distinguish repentance and the fruits of repentance, then this, I think this will, that will help you understand how it holds hands with faith as the way by which we receive justification as a free gift. Okay, and here's just other scriptural language for trusting in Christ for salvation. Um, the scripture describes what it means to, to trust in him using several different phrases. You could add to these, I'm sure, but these are just some I thought of. Okay, well, it's 11.15, and that's when this session ends. But if anyone does have a question, feel free to ask it. Um, I mean, you can raise your hand and ask it in front of everyone. You can just come up here. But the session is officially over.